Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. Tonight we're going to, and by the way, um, I have outlines for you. If you didn't get them, I have fill-ins for you. We're going to start doing that from now on. They're in the way, uh, right there when you come in. I have uh, points to fill in for you, so it helps you with your studying here. But we've, uh, we're studying this, you know, we're in this book, uh, John, it's the book of the seven signs, and it's, it's uh, designed that way so that people will read this and the signs point people to believe in Jesus, that he is the son of God. Now, we're going to begin today in Acts, uh, sorry, in John chapter 2, verse 12, but we're going to look at the story where Jesus does something very, very different than what you and I would think is his, um, his normal character. He's going to overturn the tables of the money changers. He's going to get pretty adamant and pretty wild on that as he just rips that place apart. You, most of you know the story, correct? Now, let me tell you a few things about that story. Let me give you two things. There's, there's a debate back and forth before we get in the story that this happened possibly twice. Maybe once, but happened twice. And let me tell you the debate. And let me give you some application for that. Because in John chapter 2, where we're studying it, this is at the beginning of his ministry. But if you go to Mark chapter 11, you find out at the end of his ministry, the same thing happens. And so some people say it's one and the same thing, and I'll talk about that in a second. But others say it's two different events, two same thing happened two different times. Now, let me take it from the possibility, because I don't know if it's one or if it's two. I just don't know. It can go either way on that. But let's take it from the possibility that it's two separate events and how that would apply to our lives. Well, here's the interesting part. In this story here in John 2, which would be the first time he cleanses the temple, it's a little bit different in the dialogue when you get to Mark 11. Because in Mark 11, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and everybody's saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And then it says he comes into the temple area right there. And specifically, it says that he came in and he looked around and it was already late. And then he goes home. That's interesting. And then the next day he gets up and he comes back to that temple area and he just tears everything up and he cleanses the whole thing. Now, what is a potential application from that? That is this. God the Holy Spirit in our life loves us very much and wants us to live our best, correct? He knows that sin will take us down, correct? And so there's times when the Holy Spirit does some real hard sin surgery in our lives and rips some things out. Amen to that one? Now, so let's think that that's the first time that Jesus comes into the temple in John 2. And then two years later, one, two, three years later, he comes back, but this time when he comes back, it says he comes in and he looks around. Why is he looking around? Why is Mark writing this? What is the point of saying that Jesus looked around and then he went back and the next day came and cleansed it? Is it possible? I'm just saying, is it possible that he came back so many years later and he looked around to see if the tables were still torn down, if it stayed cleansed? And when he looked around and he saw everything set up all over again, he comes back the next day and he rips it all out again. Is that possible? I think it is. And it's a great lesson for us how much the Spirit of God loves us. Amen? 
that we, he can cleanse our lives and then we go back to some old sin, set it all up again, whatever that may be, whether sin of omission or sin of commission. Omission means you're not doing what you should be doing. Commission means you're doing what you shouldn't be doing. And so he comes back a few years later and says, okay, Jim, you know what? I cleanse this. You're back doing it again. And I'm going to have to use some situations and things to get you to rip this stuff out of your life again. Does God love us enough to do that? And the answer is yes, right? Now, that's one possibility. But let's take it to the second possibility that this event in John 2 and the event in Mark 11 are one and the same event. Why does John insert it right here, like parenthetical, in the middle or at the beginning of the whole story? Well, let's take it from this perspective. Now we're seeing as we progress, and we're only in John 2, by the way, but we're seeing where Judaism has lost its value and purpose. It's failing the people, correct? We saw that Jesus in chapter 1 comes to his own, but his own did not receive him, correct? And then we saw as it progressed last week, like Jesus turns the, uh, the water into wine. But remember the six vessels for purification were off to the side at the wedding? Remember that one right there? And then Jesus says, okay, fill them up, which means pro- probably they were empty. So they fill them up with water. And that's a picture of Judaism. It's empty. Those things were for religious purposes, and they were serving no purpose anymore. So now you see another picture where it's set aside, and Jesus fills them up, like he fills them up, put, turns it into wine, which is a picture of joy, where he comes along, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and he brings a joy to our life. And then we come here to this spot here, and you come to the very temple, the place where the Jews are so proud. This is where God would come down. This is where he meets with us. And Jesus comes and rips it apart further showing that the temple of uh, the Judaism had lost its, uh, its power, had lost its meaning, and John is maybe inserting it at this time to show that, to show that this doesn't work anymore, that something new is coming. And maybe that's why John took this story, instead of putting it at the end of his gospel, he puts it right here. I don't know. I don't know. But they both make sense to me. Hopefully they both made sense to you. Amen to that one? So you take whichever one you want, or both, or however you want it. So let's look at John chapter 2. And it says, after, he, after this, he went down to Capernaum, and he and his mother and his bro- brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Now, remember I told you last week, nobody gets married. Because remember, the Mormons say Jesus got married at the wedding of Canaan, Right? Nobody leaves their wedding without their bride and goes with mama, all right, okay? Say amen to that one, okay? Okay, praise the Lord, hallelujah. I'm glad we all agree on at least one thing tonight. Now, now notice in verse 13, the Passover of the Jew. Oh, I'm sorry, point one was this. Write this down. The, John purposely, oh, see, I'm not used to it yet. Here we go. John purposely changes the name of Passover. He changes the name. Now, let me read verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, first, let me show you something real quick, then I'll get into that statement. John purposely changes the name of Passover. It says that they went up to Capernaum. I'm sorry, they went down to Capernaum, and then they went up to Jerusalem. Capernaum's to the north. Jerusalem's to the south. Would you say when you're going north that you're going down north? You say you're going what? Up. But they say we're going up to Capernaum, which is on the Sea of Galilee, north side. But they're going up to Jerusalem, heading south. Now, why is that? Now, how many long-time Corona people here? You know, long-time Corona people, that if you're going to go down Main Street, you'd always say, if you're going south, you go, I'm going up Main Street. Anybody remember that? 
It's because what's out south of Corona? It's the mountains, right? So you're going up that way. That's the way we looked at it back then. It's the same principle here. They're going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem sits at an elevation of 4,000 feet. In fact, when I was there three times ago in 2012, the night I was in Jerusalem, one of the nights, it was so cold, they said it could snow tonight. It gets that cold there because of the elevation gain there. Now, back to the illustration right here. Notice in verse 13, he says, the Passover of the what? Of the Jews. Okay, now hold that thought, but let me explain to some of you uh, what Passover is, because most of you know, but for people maybe watching this later on this week, want them to understand what Passover is, because you never want to assume as a teacher that everybody knows everything. Never, ever assume that. You always assume that people don't know these things, so you want to explain them to you. Now, Passover. Jesus is there at Passover. When did Passover begin? It began a long time before this moment right here, about 1,480 years before this. It was that time when they were about to leave Egypt. And the last plague that God tells Moses is the angel of death is coming. And if you want to escape the angel of death, which will kill the firstborn male in a family, you got to take lamb's blood. And you got to take that blood, you got to put it over the doorposts and the lintel. And it's a beautiful picture because the blood up here on the, on the lintel is going to drip down to the feet area. So you see Jesus' right hand, Jesus' left hand. You see the head right here, the crown of thorns. You see the feet nailed, 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 crown of thorns. What a beautiful picture, amen? And so when the angel of death would come by that night, he would look, and if there was blood on the doorpost and lintel, he would pass over. That's right. And therefore, that firstborn male would not die. He would pass over. So that's how it all began where sin is passed over. In the Old Testament, sin was just, um, it was covered. When Jesus comes and John the Baptist said in chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the Passover Lamb for real now. And it's not just covered. Sin will be washed away and cleansed forever. Amen? So that's your picture of Passover right there, where they would bring this spotless Lamb. Now, the big deal going on here where John purposely changes his name, he calls it in verse 13, the Passover of the, say it again, of the Jews. Now, is that what the Passover was called? And the answer is no. No. Turn quickly to Exodus chapter 12, very quickly. Um, and I just want to read it to you. <clears throat> Watch what it actually is called. It makes even a bigger case for something. I'll read it, then I'll tell you what it makes a case for because I've already stated it a few times. Look at Exodus 12. When you're there, say, I'm there. Okay, look at verse 11. It says, now you shall eat it, this is talking about Passover, in this manner. This is the night before they're leaving Egypt. This is the final, these are going to be delivered. With your loins girded, your sandals on your feet. None of you go to sleep with the shoes on, right? But they're girded, ready to roll. And your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the, say it, the Lord's. It is the What? The Lord's, oh, the Lord's Passover. Now flick back to John chapter 2. Now notice what John calls it. He called it the Passover of the what? Of the Jews. Notice the name change. Once again, probably, I would say probably affirming the Judaism, the temple, the sacrifices. They were becoming obsolete. They had failed. But now the real Passover lamb was now on the scene. Amen? Does that make sense right there? Now, let's move on. Point two in your notes is this. Jesus cleans out the sin on the temple. Amen? And he does clean it out. Look at verse 14. 
And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. Okay. <clears throat> Jesus comes to the temple mount. Does it look, to, during Passover, does Passover now look anything like it did when they were delivered? Nothing. Not even close. Let me explain to you, some of you who have never heard why Jesus tears this thing apart, what's really going on in this place. The priests, the Levites, they're the, in that day, they're the religious slash political leaders of Israel. They controlled the Temple Mount. They were as corrupt, they were as dirty as you come. Annas was the main, let's call him like the, the John Gotti, because he'd be like that. He's a religious political leader, but he's like a crime boss. He was once the high priest. Now his son-in-law, Caiaphas, has been put in place. Caiaphas is just a puppet. Because if you look at the trials of Jesus, the first place they take Jesus to is to Annas before he ever gets to Caiaphas. Annas is running the show. So he's running the Temple Mount. Now, let's put yourself in the position of the Israelites coming there during Passover. You've got to bring your lamb for sacrifice, do you not? When you got there, there was a whole system set up. Check it out. You'd get there, and Annas and the guys on the Temple Mount, they have their uh, lamb examiners there. They would look at your lamb that you've had now because you've had it now for four days, you grew attached to it, and that was, a, that was a, also a symbol of you grow attached to Jesus and he sacrificed for you because he's a picture of that. Now, but you, they look at your lamb and it's supposed to be perfect, is it not? They look at your lamb and they say, uh, no, nah, not going to cut it, sorry. It's, just, it's not perfect. But we just happen. So I'm having some, we have some pre-examined lambs here. And you can buy one from us. And they were at the mercy because they had to do this, right? But people came from all over. But your foreign currency, uh, we can't accept that. Because you see, the Roman Empire has Caesar's face on it. That's idol worship. We can't take it. We'll exchange it. It's funny how they'll take that money in exchange, right? We'll exchange it. We'll give you shekels so you can buy the lamb. But we're going to charge you 25% of your money to exchange it. You had to do it, so you did that. And now you're going to buy the lamb. And they say, now, the price of these lambs that we pre-examined, gave the price, they sold them at 10 times the price of a regular lamb. Josephus, the historian, says at Passover, they sacrificed 256,000 lambs on the Temple Mount at Passover. Do you think they're making any money? They're making so much money off the people, and the people are getting ripped off. It's corrupt. It's polluted. It's everything. Jesus, think about Jesus now. He has been coming there in his elementary school years, his middle school years, his high school years, his 20-something years. He has watched this go on year after year after year. He knows what's going on. Everyone knows what's going on. But this time, he doesn't come as a kid. He comes as the God-man, right? Now he's coming. He says, okay, I've put up with this long enough. And he comes into that place, 
And boy, he just starts tearing that thing apart, does he not? Because we're done with you leaders, you political, religious, corrupt leaders ripping people up. Verse 15 goes on to say this. And he made a scourge of cords. You just never think of Jesus this way, do you? But he makes his whip and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. That's right. Jesus cleanses the temple. He just tears the thing apart. Why? He wants to bring it back to the original intention. And more than that, there's something better now in that place standing right before them, which is him. Amen to that? Now, let's think about this. You ever been, well, some of you have been to Israel. How many have been to Israel? One of the things when you go to Israel, Jerry, you remember this, is that when you get to go down the Via Dolorosa, you're all excited, right? Oh, man, this is the way that Jesus walked with the cross. You're walking, all of a sudden, you forget you're on the Via Dolorosa. You know why? Because on both sides of you, they're screaming at you because it's a big flea market. It's a swabbing, and they're screaming at you. And they can speak Spanish if you speak Spanish. And they're really good. You forget that you're even on the Via Dolorosa because of all the people selling stuff right there. Well, same thing's happening here. It, the, the Temple Mount was a big flea market. That's all it was. Can you imagine? Jesus will say it's supposed to be a house of prayer. But you would go there. Do you think it was quiet on that Temple Mount? Do you think it was a place you could go find quiet and, and pray? There was no, none like that. And so he comes along, he says, we're going to rip this thing apart because this is sin and it's wrong. Now, hold your finger here. Go back to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Now, look at this. I think we're going to look at this verse in the future, maybe next week again, but just for, by, for prep. Look at the last letter of the Old Testament. Look at Malachi chapter 3. Look at the prophecy. This is about 400 years before the moment Jesus cleanses it, and uh, these are called the dark years. There's 400 years between the Old and New Testament, um, where God doesn't seem to say much to people. Now look at chapter 3 of Malachi, look at verses 1 through 4. Watch, watch the prophetic statement. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Who's the messenger who came ahead of him? John the Baptist, good for you. And the Lord, now it's talking about the Lord, whom you seek will suddenly come to his what? His temple. And, their mess, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller soap. That's cleansing, is it not? Verse 3. He will sit uh, as a smelter and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, those are religious leaders, this tribe of Levites, and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings and righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Is that a wild prophecy or what? That Jesus, first the forerunner comes. And then all of a sudden, suddenly, here comes the God-man, walks in the temple, out of the blue. They did not expect him that day, but here he comes, and he tears things apart. Can I give you a funny sidebar, or a fun sidebar? Can I, yes or no? You don't want it, yes? If you don't say yes, I'm not going to give it to you. Okay, I'm going to give you one. To, you have to think about it yourself, okay? Now, if you look at the story carefully, you're going to find out he overturned the tables of money, drove out the oxen, 
Drove out the sheep, drove them out. But look at verse 16 at the beginning. And to those who were selling the doves, he said. He never, never says that he drove out the doves. Never says that he opened up those things and drove out. It just said he said to those people. I find that fascinating, don't you? Because if you think about it, if he drove away sheep and he drove away oxen and he overturned money, you as the person who owns the sheep and the oxen and the money, you could find that and get that again, right? But if he opens up those bird cages and you own those birds, you'll never get them back, correct? So just, I kinda, just, a, just a thought. It may mean nothing to you whatsoever, but really nobody lost anything that day when he overturned the tables. So what he's doing here is he's got zeal, but he's using wisdom too, is he not? There's zeal and there's wisdom. Very smart combination to have in our life as we progress. Zeal and wisdom. Now, point three. I think you have a typo in that one, but it should say, just should say is. If Christianity is not self-help, it's self-replacement. Christianity is not self-help, it's self-replacement. Are there enough self-help books in, in places? Christianity is not self-help. It's self-replacement. If it's self-help, you're going to make a mistake. Now, let me try to explain that. Look at verse 16. And to those who are selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Look, when a person decides, I'm going to stop this bad habit, not Christian, not, not a follower of Christ, you're just going to get rid of it. How many know if you get rid of a bad habit, you better put in a good habit? Because otherwise, all you're going to do is transfer addiction to some area of your life. Am I right? Okay. Am I right? Okay, that's a, I, that's a goal right there I just gave you. Okay, but that's, that's just self-help. That doesn't change it. This is where we get so frustrated. It's self-replacement. Let me explain. Do you remember the story where the demon is cast out of the guy? And the demon leaves. And it says he goes through waterless places. He's looking for another human body to inhabit because demons need an entity, something where they can manifest themselves. You understand that, right? And he can't find any. And so what does he do? He finds seven other demons worse than himself. I mean, there's a category of worse demons? And they go back to the place they came from, to the guy's life. And they find him, they call it his house, but it's his body, clean, swept, and in order. But you realize that as nothing's been replaced. And so they go right back in. And the last state of a man is worse than the original state. Because you've got to put the right thing in there. You can't just empty something out. You've got to put it in. You see, self-help just empties things out. doesn't replace anything. Christianity is self-replacement. You have Jesus come into your life and you surrender everything to him. And you allow the Holy Spirit to guide your life. Now you have the DNA. You have been replaced. Jim Del Campo, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me in the life that I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God. And I've got the DNA of God. I have been replaced. It's not my life anymore. And once I carry the DNA of God, guess what? I can now walk in new life. Because it's not self-help, it's self-replacement. Amen to that one? Now, if you just take that one home with you, it's going to help out a lot. Now, notice that Jesus in the story, he calls a temple my father's what? My father's house. If he's calling a temple my father's house, what is he stating about himself? I'm divine. 
I'm God's son. That's a big statement, isn't it? This is my father's house. Now check it out. Verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So now we have this insertion that in this statement that Jesus makes, the disciples remember Psalm 69.9, Psalm 69.9, that that was a statement, zeal for my father's house will consume me. It's a prophetic statement that Jesus fulfills in the temple. Now think about that. They remembered it. Zeal for my father's house will consume me, Jesus said. Zeal for my father's house will consume me. Is he zealous overturning the tables? Is he zealous cleaning out the temple? That's right. He's got zeal. Is Annas, the crime boss, happy or angry that Jesus zealously cleaned out the area? He's angry. So Annas will now set out on the road to consume Jesus by eventually killing him on a cross. Zeal for my father's house will end up consuming me. Do you follow that? Are you tracking with that? Because that's, I think, what he's saying right there. Now, <clears throat> number four, point four in your notes, and that's this. They demand a sign from Jesus proving his authority to do what he just did. We want a sign. Prove your authority. You just did this. Give us a sign proving you can do what you say. This kind of stuff. Verse 18, watch. This is what they say. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Now, <laughs> what, what are they talking about? Well, Jesus just cleaned it out, right? And he's standing there and he says, my, This is my father's house. Big statement, bold statement. And they say, Give us a sign proving you are who you say you are. You're saying this is your father's house. Give us a sign to prove it right there. <clears throat> Which means back in John chapter 1, when he said, John the Baptist says, there's one that stands among you. He's talking to the priest. He says, whom you do not even know. They don't even know who he is. They have no idea who this guy is. They're so oblivious to this right here. But the question, once again, is your authority. Your authority. They're always, if you follow the Gospels, they're always questioning Jesus' authority. And one of the elements of his authority that they're questioning is this. Remember? You didn't go to our Levite school or our preschool. You're not a rabbi. You, didn't, you weren't in elementary school with us. You didn't do this. You didn't do any of those things. You're an outsider. And he is an outsider. He's not part of the system that's corrupt. He's an outsider coming in to destroy the very system that they want to hold on to and have been running for decade after decade after decade. You know, when Jesus one day was asked, by what authority do you do these things? Do you remember that question? Later on? And he says, I'll ask you a question. I would be scared at that moment. And he asks, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. Because if you can answer that, I'll answer your question. And what do they do? Oh my gosh, we don't know what to say about this one right here. If we say, uh, if we say, uh, if we say it wasn't from heaven, then it'd be the people. You know, we're gonna John. They hold John to be a prop. They don't know what to do. He's got him, and they say we can't answer. He says, "Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things." <laughs> it was great, but they're wanting to know what authority do you have? They're always trying to get him on this authority thing. Now, 
Number five, point five. Jesus moves the temple from a place to a person. We've talked about that before, remember? Now look at verse 19. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now that's shocking, isn't it? Because you're standing there. It's going to be more shocking when you hear what this temple was all about in a few minutes here. Jesus is speaking about the temple of his body, is he not? He's speaking about his death and his resurrection. Destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up again. What did they ask for originally? Give us a what? A sign. What did he just give them? Here's the sign that you're going to be looking for. Destroy this temple, three days I'll raise it up again. What's interesting about the statement is you go to the trials of Jesus as we'll start studying this weekend, especially I think with, yeah, with this weekend with Caiaphas' trial, um, you're going to find that they twist his words. They take his words, but they twist them with false testimony. It's interesting, interesting the way they do these things and you know, like nothing's changed. Anyway. But anyway, I'll just say that out loud. Now, so Jesus, when he says, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up again. He moves the temple from a place, a building, to a person. That you are the temple of the Holy Spirit now. This temple that you see is, gonna, is obsolete. I'm bringing a whole new way in here. And the Spirit of God will now dwell in anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Never forget that. You're the temple of the Spirit. Now, about temples, just for historical sake. This is the third temple. The first temple was built by Solomon. You remember his dad, David, was not allowed to build a temple? He's a man of bloodshed you know, because he's, he did some stuff in his life. But David did the next best thing. He gets all the materials together. Since he can't build it, I'll get all the materials together. His son comes along. His son becomes King Solomon. Solomon builds a temple. It was a grand temple. But then, years go by. Israel goes into idolatry. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they're warning Zedekiah, the king. They're warning him, turn away from idolatry. Turn away from it. He's not listening. He's not listening. So finally, Nebuchadnezzar comes. He comes in three sieges, and the last one in 586, I believe. He takes the last deportation. He destroys the temple, burns it down, takes all the stuff out of it, takes everything. The first temple is destroyed. Then time goes by. The 70 years of, of the deportation of enslavement is over. The prophecy of Jeremiah, they come back under the reign of, of, uh, of Cyrus. The Persians conquered the Babylonians. They come back and they rebuild the temple. Now, it's not a big temple like Solomon's. It's a very small temple, and they feel very ashamed of it. And God says, don't despise the day of small things in Zechariah. Don't despise that. Okay, flash forward now. That's the second one. Flash forward to now. This here is the third temple. It's called Herod's temple. Now, Herod, which they don't trust as far as you could spit him, but he wants to do a good deed to the Jews. So he's going to build a massive temple for these guys. But they don't trust him. They think if you dismantle our existing little temple, you're never going to build a new one. So Herod has to, and he does, he builds the new massive temple first over the existing little temple. And once that's done, then they dismantle the little temple <laughs> and get everything out of there. Is that crazy or what? But the temple is huge. If you go to Israel with us, you will see, you can go online and see it. You look at the, um, 
the scale model of the city of Jerusalem at the time of Christ, and you see how big that temple was, Herod's temple, in comparison to the rest of the city. It's, it's huge, my friends. Now, look at verse 20. Jesus has just said, destroy this temple, and in how many days I'll raise it up? Three days. Watch what they say. The Jews then said, because now the debate's on, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his, but do they get it? Just for the record, neither would have I. I wouldn't have got it. I wouldn't even understand what they're talking, what he was talking about. I, I wouldn't get it. But he's kind of bailing his words so not everybody gets it, right? Because he's, Jesus is really receptive to open hearts, but not to hard hearts. He's just not. Because hard hearts don't want to learn anything. And he's not going to waste his words on people that are just not going to listen or obey. Now, they say, it took 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days? You're going to destroy it, raise it up? And they didn't get the fact he's talking about his body. Well, let's talk about that temple and their statement. That temple, they began building it. Herod did in 19 B.C. Not A.D., B.C. Jesus rolls around there, you know, I don't know, 31, 32, 33 A.D., Get that? They've been building it for about 49, 50 years at that moment. Is it finished? No. They will not finish the temple and the temple mount till somewhere around 62 or 63 AD. Another 30 years. Another 30. Have you any of you been to Crazy Horse Monument in South Dakota? I've been there. They've been working on that thing for what, 50, 60 years. I don't know what it is now. They're not even close. It's going to take 50, 60 more years to get to be what it's supposed to be. But that's how long it's because they're carving rock, right? And they've been working on this at this moment for about 50 years. But it's going to take another 30 years before it's done. That's how long it's taken. And when it's finished, it will only last about seven years. It will be torn down in 70 AD. Jesus gives the prophecy in Matthew 24. He's sitting there with the disciples on the Mount of Olives, looking across. He says, do you see the stones? Yeah. Some of you have seen some of those stones. They're like 20 by 40. They're, they're massive, some of these stones. Um, he says, not one stone shall be left standing upon another, but it will be torn down, just torn down. He prophesies that. And some people try to say, well, that was written way after the fact. That, that he, he couldn't have probably done that. Well, read the rest of the New Testament and find out if you ever see anybody writing saying the temple was torn down. Not one. Because it didn't happen in this time frame. It happened, they wrote these, the, the Gospels and they wrote the epistles before the temple was torn down. It's another great evidence of his prophecies right there. So they tear it down. What happened? The Romans come and siege the city. And they're sieging the city for, I think, two years. Over a million uh, Jewish men, women, and children die in the seats. They starve them out. When they finally break through and take the city, you know, they're, they're, you know, there's different accounts, but they say a Roman soldier threw a torch where the priests had barricaded themselves in the temple, caught the inner temple on fire. Because there's curtains, everything in there. And the, it burned down, and it was so hot. And what's the temple filled with? Gold. The gold melts. And it melts in the cracks. 
Do you think the Romans are going to leave and leave the gold in the cracks? No. To get the gold in the cracks, guess what? They tear that thing down one stone upon another. They tear it down. So efficient were they in tearing it down. You go there today and no one knows where that temple stood on the Temple Mount. They, they took it. They dismantled it so well. The stones are still over the side down the Valley Kidron, but nobody knows where it was. They dismantled that thing. And of course, there was like 900 and some Jewish people that escaped the city and they go to Masada. You've heard of Masada, right? During this time, during the siege. Once they broke through the city, these people escaped. They go to Masada, they hide up there because there's a snake trail, only one person at a time going walk the snake trail. So for 10 months they're up there and the Romans are building a siege wall on the backside of Masada. Finally, after 10 months, that's where they push their, their carts up to, to, to get over the wall. When they get up there, everybody's committed suicide, except for a mom and a, a couple kids. And that's the story of Masada. But they came from this siege right here. Now, <clears throat> that temple, this temple, destroyed the temple. That's why they couldn't understand it, because they've been working on it 50 years. It's got 30 to go. Uh, what do you mean, destroy this temple? Jesus is saying that because he's moving it from a place to a person. Something better is there now. That's why in Matthew 12, 6, Jesus will say, something greater than the temple is here. But we, they didn't get it. I wouldn't have got it. Something greater is here, meaning himself. Amen? Amen. Now look at verse 22. Let's try to drive this thing home. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. Isn't it great to remember after the fact? Remember I said we remember and re- understand in reverse? That's what they're saying right there. Oh, yeah, after it all happened, yeah, we get it now. Um, they remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Did they believe it at the time? The answer is yeah. uh, no. They believe after the fact, after he died, buried, and rose from the dead. Then they finally believe it. What did the disciples do when Jesus was taken and crucified and buried? What were they doing? What did they do for the weekend? Don't say water skiing. They're hiding because they didn't believe that Jesus was going to rise from the dead, did they? They didn't believe it one bit. Nuh-uh. That's when people say, well, the disciples stole the body. They were hiding in fear and try to get through the Roman guards. They would have all died. They couldn't fight these Roman guards. These were trained killers, man. And then when they say, well, you know, Jesus faked it. He faked death and took him down. They put him in the tomb for three days. And then he came three days later. They got him out there. And you know, he's walking around. And that's why, really? Have you ever read up on what happens to a crucified victim? Have you ever read what they do to the guy? There's no way that Jesus three days later could walk around going, here I am, guys. He'd be walking around like, here I am, guys. It would be bad. It would be bad. It would take... You know, if, the, if he didn't die in the ambulance, it would, living today, it would take him getting to the hospital and being in intensive care months and months and months and months just to recover. And you're going to tell me three days later, he, he's there going, here I am, and everybody's going to go, yeah, you look pretty good. No way. There's no way. Uh-uh. He resurrected from the dead. The disciples just didn't believe it. Now, point six. Jesus is the opposite of, of today's leaders. Amen? Amen? But let me show you how. Verse 23 to 25. This is my last thought. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. Because that's the point of the book, right? They see the signs and they believe in his name. That's the whole point of John, the gospel. 
But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them. For he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Okay, Jesus wasn't trusting any of these leaders. At all. At all. And you've heard me say this, well, I, I try not to be cynical anymore in my life, but it's tough right now. It's really tough for me. Maybe not for you, but maybe for me. Um, <clears throat> let's look at the difference between most of today's leaders and Jesus as a leader. Just quickly. Today's leaders get power, their power and influence through like popular support. Do they not? Okay, I've, I've watched this closely, so I'm not making stuff up. When leaders campaign today, they tell this state and this group of people one thing. Do they not? Then they go to this state with a whole different people. Do they tell them the same thing they told them? No, they don't. Then they go to another state and talk to a different people. Do they tell them the same thing they told them and then? No, they don't. They go to wherever they go, and they're going to tell whatever group of people that they think those people want to hear so they can get the votes. That's what they do. They just watch it. Just That's what they do. They're going to play that way so they can get the vote and get them to follow. Jesus is a little bit different, isn't he? Jesus, wherever he goes, he's going to tell you the truth, is he not? He doesn't care whether you vote for him or not. He doesn't care what you think. You're either going to accept the truth or you're not. This is the truth and this is it. I'm not worried about popular support, he says. I'm worried about sharing the truth. We need leaders like that, do we not? Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate and he says these words, I've come into the world to testify of the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And what does Pilate ask him? What is truth? Isn't that wild? Truth is standing right in front of him. It's the greatest myth in the Gospels. This is truth. He's speaking the truth right here. But Pilate says, what is truth? Because Pilate probably lives in a world like many today. What's true for you is not true for me. What's true for me is not true for you. That's your opinion. That's just... No, there is an absolute truth. Is there not? But our world has veered from that and whitewashed it. It goes back to the garden when the serpent said, has God really said? Has God really said? Come on, that's, there's no truth. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. And the word of God is our absolute truth. And we do not compromise it. Wherever we are, whatever anyone's saying, this is the absolute truth. Jesus spoke the truth and he didn't care what anybody thought about it because truth is truth is truth is truth. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. We're done. Lord God, we are so grateful for tonight, God, for your word, because it is so powerful. And all these things, God, that are happening, <laughs> Jesus, the way you're interacting and what you're bringing forth and <sighs> the applications for our life, it's so good. I pray, God, these things are implanted in our souls. Thank you, God, for your word. In Jesus' name we pray, and we all said amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCC Norco, or 
email us at hello at nbcc.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.